Well, uh, you can raise your hands if this is true of you. Who has ever made a bad decision? Show of hands. Okay, if you're not raising your hand, we're doubting your humility right at this moment. Uh, you don't need to raise your hand for the next question, but who has made a tremendously bad decision? No need to raise your hand as you're thinking about that or trying to forget that. Uh, my name is Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor and special welcome to the Harbor Online community. Whether you're watching from home or on vacation, wherever you're at, we're just so glad you are part of our church service this morning. Anyone ever made a tremendously bad decision? Right, you don't even want to think about that one, right? And then, then how about this category? You made a tremendously bad decision, but somewhere along the way, you leveraged God to help you make the decision. Meaning like people were saying to you, you know, that, that doesn't sound so good. You know, that's not, that's not the best choice. And people were saying that. And then you said, no, God spoke to me. You know, God said I should do this. I was praying or reading the Bible, and I'm not diminishing that we should pray and read the Bible, but you sort of use that to leverage your tremendously bad decision. And then looking back, you would say of yourself, you made that decision, but that was not God. He did not speak to me. I, I just totally miss that. Anyone ever been there? We, we at times can just leverage God, and he's got the highest authority in everything, so we say, God said. It was God's will. He told me, and off we go. So here's what we know. Here, here's what we know as we start this morning. All people have a capacity to make bad decisions. In fact, all people have a capacity to make tremendously bad decisions. And we also know this, that new Christians or immature Christians have a real possibility to make awful decisions. And, not to leave out some of the rest of us, but some of us who are might call ourselves maybe a little more mature or a little more sincere in our faith, we have the capacity also to make foolish decisions. Tremendously bad, foolish, or awful, they're all the same. And we all sort of have gone down that road. And so as I come today, here's, here's where we are. Here, here's the title for today. How to avoid making a bad decision. How to avoid making a bad decision. Now, back in May, middle of May, I think it was the 16th, I did a message there entitled, Six Ways to Know Whether You're Moving in the Right Direction. And so on, in that message, we talked about six ways we can determine God's will for our lives. Today, we're just going to pull out one of those six and talk more about it. So the title could be today, One Way to Avoid Making a Bad Decision, which would be true. There's five other ways, and I'm not neglecting those five. You can go back and hear the whole message on the six of them, but we're just focusing on one. And here's how we got here today. We're starting a new series through uh, the book or through the time period in the history of the Old Testament called the Kings. And so there's a time period and each king is listed in the Bible and he gets this little legacy statement. Each king, and there's more said about them, but each king, it says they either served the Lord and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're going to come into this time period in biblical history where the kings, if you've got your Bibles, it's First and Second Kings, also First and Second Chronicles. 
And this is the time period we're looking at. Let me just give a quick little history overview of the Old Testament. You've got creation, Genesis chapter 1. Then we go to Genesis 12. You've got Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the nation Israel, his great-grandson Joseph. They end up in Egypt, the people of Israel. 400 years later, Moses comes along, brings them out of slavery. They wander in the wilderness 40 years. Joshua takes them into the promised land. They conquer it. And then there's a period of judges the book of the Bible called Judges. Samuel is the last judge, and at the end of Samuel, all the people say, we want a king. So then we enter into the times of kings. There's three different periods in the times of the kings. The first is the single kingdom, Saul, who wasn't such a great king, but then David came along, a man after God's own heart, and then David's son, Solomon. We call that the United Kingdom. I'll put a little chart up on the side screen so you can see it. There's the United Kingdom. Then after Solomon, the kingdom splits. You get 10 northern tribes. We call that Israel and two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and that's called Judah. So if you're reading through this, you're going to see the king of Israel or the king of Judah. It's because of that divided kingdom. And then as you see on the chart, the northern tribes fall. They fall to Assyria, comes in and conquers them, and it leaves a single kingdom, just the nation of Judah, until they eventually fall to the nation Babylon. That's in the prophets. And then the very end of the story, Ezra and Nehemiah, they bring them back after 70 years, and then if you keep reading a little bit further, we get John the Baptist who comes on the scene. So that's the section we're in, and we're in now in the divided kingdom and the single kingdom, talking about the kings of Judah, those that follow the line of David. So that's sort of how the big picture of this series plays out. And so you may ask then, we went from united kingdom to divided kingdom. How did the kingdom get divided? Great question. Here's the answer. One very bad decision. One very bad decision. And we will see that here this morning. In your Bibles, I hope you've got them. Open them up. Turn them on. First Kings chapter 12. And we look and we learn how the united kingdom of 12 tribes of Israel gets divided into two. It's the split in the country that plays out throughout history. That They're never united again. So, hope you've got it there. We're actually going to go back. If you found 1 Kings chapter 12, you go to Psalms, work back a little bit. Uh, we're going to start right at the end of chapter 11, just so you get sort of the history of what's happening, and we see this very bad decision play its way out. Let me read for you. You'll see it on the screens as well. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. So a little background. We've learned that Solomon has just died. He served the Lord for 40 years and as king. And you know this is, the, this is some of the best time, or the best time, as the nation Israel. Near the end of David's reign, Early on in Solomon's reign, they're a world power. Solomon is regarded for his wisdom. People are coming to visit the nation Israel. You know, they're the world's superpower. Everything has gone well for them. Now, near the end, it starts to go down a little bit. But then Solomon dies, and his son, Rehoboam, is appointed as king. And he is going to now go to a city called Shechem to be 
inaugurated as king. All the 12 tribes were going to gather there. They would have sent their elders, their representatives. It's going to be a big ceremony to recognize Rehoboam as king. And so that's how the the story opens. This is a big day in Rehoboam's life. He's 41 years old. He's probably looked forward to this moment for a long time. You know, he's been thinking of it. He's grieving the death of his father, but he's also stepping in. Oh, today I'm going to get to be king of Israel, king of the world superpower. And he's got dreams and ambitions, and here's how I'm going to lead, and here's what I'm going to do. You just imagine all that's pulsing through him. And so that's how the story opens for us. Look down to verse 2. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, that he was, a, he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke you put on us, and we will serve you. So we're introduced to a second character. His name is Jeroboam. We're not going to talk more about him, but if you want to do a little more reading, he's really, again, in the history of the northern tribes, very important in how God is working through him and in his life. But on this day, he shows up at the inauguration and says, not so fast. Not so fast, Rehoboam. You're not going to be king just yet. He's ruining the day here a little bit, right? If you're Rehoboam, you're like, just let me be king. He's saying, not so fast, and there is an issue that needs to be discussed. And and the way he says it was there was a heavy yoke placed on the people. See, in order for Solomon to have accomplished all that he accomplished, all the building projects, all the beauty, all the grandeur, all the wealth, what Solomon had to do was he had to do two things. He had to tax the people of Israel heavily, and he forced them into compulsory labor. And so the people have been under a very heavy load, both of taxation and forced to work in all these projects for a long time. And so now they're coming. They couldn't negotiate under Solomon. He was too strong and too powerful. But now that he's dead, they send Rehoboam. The elders come, and they want to renegotiate their deal with the king. They want to say, take this yoke and make it lighter on us. You see all that's at stake for Rehoboam in this moment. First day, he's not even king yet. He hasn't even been inaugurated, and he has enormously big decision. You see what's at stake. If he accepts the offer, he's accepting a conditional kingship. You know, okay, yeah, sure, but then how does he know that in a month or in a year they're going to come back and want to renegotiate again? And he fears that it could make him weak as a king. The other side of it is that if he doesn't give in to the demands, he knows there's the danger of revolt, that the people could just say, we don't want you to be king. And then thirdly, he's probably dealing with the whole idea of his dreams being shattered a little bit. He's thinking, now I'm going to have to lead in a season of reduced income, a reduced labor force, reduced military, and he's seeing all of the challenges that that's going to play out. So you see the moment here. Rehoboam is faced with this decision brought him, brought him this way on his inauguration day. What happens next? Verse 5, Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So far, so good. Right? This is prudent. This is wise. This is a good answer. He says, give me some time. Give me some time to think about this. We might say it this way, time is our friend. Or we might say, there's an English phrase we say, where we say, you know, Rehoboam is buying time. 
If you're familiar with that phrase, it simply means to buy time means to delay an event temporarily to improve your position. So Rehoboam's buying some time. He's like, give me time to think about this. And actually, this is really wise. You know, sometimes when we come to make bad decisions, we're just forced into them too quickly. And here we learn from Rehoboam. He just sits back. He says, okay, give me three days. Let me think about this. So, so far, so good for Rehoboam. Verse 6, then Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. Now, now we learn something fascinating here about Solomon first and the way he set his kingdom up. Remember, during the time of Solomon's reign, he is regarded as the wisest man in the world. People are coming to hear his wisdom and to learn from him. And so, again, this is still his kingdom set up. And how does he have the kingdom set up? How does the wisest man in the world, how has he organized things? What he has is he has a council of elders. Do you see that there? They're set up, they're ready to go to advise him on any situation. It seems almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? The wisest man in the world... He shouldn't need any counsel. He just should be able to figure out everything on his own. But the wisest man in the world at the time knows that he needs a council of elders to be able to advise him. And that's implicit in the kingdom. Rehoboam knows this is how the kingdom operates. He knows he needs a little bit of time. And so he goes to the elders. He would have seen his father do this multiple times. Let me go to the elders and let me ask them what they think. Again, this is really wise. He's doing really well in this regard so far. And again, here's the nice thing about the elders is they have a little bit of objectivity. Right? They're not so biased. Their, their emotions aren't in it. And again, you know, sometimes we come to make a decision, and we've got all of these emotions going through us, and we just lose object, objectivity. And Rehoboam would have felt like this on this day. Right? My kingship's being threatened. What's happening here? And so now he goes to a group of people who can just look in from the outside and say, here's the reality of the situation. So, so far, so good. Verse 7, they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable response, they will always be your servants. And so the elders are looking in and they're seeing this and they see this. This helps us. They, they say, you know, these people are not rebellious. They're just tired. They're just really worn out. And Rehoboam, if you would serve them, just be good to them in this moment. Look what he says. They will always be your servants. Rehoboam, you're going to have a little bit of short-term loss here. You're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to be gracious. You're going to have to serve. But if you do take some short-term loss, you're going to have long-term gain. They will serve you always. You will be the king forever, or, you know, for the rest of your life. It's a great word from the elders. And here's sort of the principle they're teaching. We know this principle. When authority and power is used to serve people, it generates loyalty. When authority and power is used to serve and to work for the good of others, it generates loyalty. And so they're saying to Rehoboam, just serve the people. Love them. Be good to them. Engage with them. And they will be loyal to you. It's a great word from them. Now, now, just as a little aside, 
as uh, if you're maybe new to church or new to Christianity, we sang a song, one of the four songs we sang this morning, had a great little part in it where it said, you know, worthy is Jesus, I'm summarizing, but where we just expressed our love and the worth of Jesus Christ. And, And if you're new to following Jesus or new to church, you might say, why are people in church singing these love songs to Jesus? Why is that? Well, let me answer it for you. It's right here in this principle. Jesus is the ultimate example of what the elders have just said. Jesus did not use, Jesus has all power and authority. He's God. But yet he did not use his power and authority to judge us, which he could have done. We're deserving of it. He did not use his power and authority to judge us. Instead, he used it to serve us. He served it ultimately by coming and giving his life by dying. And in Christ serving us in that way, in giving us his life through his death, we then receive life. Through his death, we live. And so, because he has done that for us, because we have received the gift of his love, we are immensely loyal to him. This this principle is lived out in Christ. He did not use his power and authority to judge, but to serve. And so he has just inclined our hearts an immense love for him. And that's why we sing. That's why we worship. So back to our story. So far, so good. Let me get some time. Let me go talk to the council of elders. And the elders give great advice. It's all going along so well. If you look down to verse 8, you see the next word, which is but. And this is where it turns. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. But Rehoboam rejected the advice. Note the order here. Note the order. He rejects the advice, and then he goes to the young men to hear what they have to say. It really should have, if it was genuine, it should have been the other way around. He should have gone to the elders, gone to the young men, then contemplated both pieces of advice, and then chose one or the other. But he doesn't do that. And so here's what I'm beginning to pick up. The process was not that genuine. Rehoboam really wasn't going to the elders looking for advice because as soon as he hears it, he rejects it. He didn't like what he heard. What is Rehoboam doing? And you've done this. I've done this. He's shopping for good advice. Ever done this? Right? You want to do something, and so you go ask someone, hey, what do you think? And they say, oh, that's a bad idea. You're like, oh, I'm not talking to you anymore. Let me go find someone else. Right? And we just keep looking and looking till we find someone that will actually agree with our decision. And then we're like, oh, this is wonderful. Let's move forward with it. This is what Rehoboam is doing. And look who he goes. And if you're in that mode right now and you're looking for someone to agree with your bad decision, you get great advice on here on where to look. Here's where he goes. He goes to the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. See the power and difference here? Right? He's now the new king. And so Rehoboam goes to his friends who are underneath him and says, what do you think? Now, who in that group is going to object? Oh, yeah, I think you should go with the elders, Rehoboam, right? He'd be like, okay, you're out. You're not coming to any more of my king parties, right? You're just out. You're on your way. I'm not listening to you, right? They have everything to lose. The elders had nothing to lose. They just told them the truth. But the friends here, because of the power and balance, had everything to lose by speaking the truth. And so they just agreed with Rehoboam. And they not only agreed, but look what they say next in verse 9. We'll read three verses here. He asked them, 
what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young man who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you, and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. There's the advice he gets. And it really comes out in three different sort of phrases there at the end. The first one's probably the hardest to understand, but it's also probably the most significant to, so you understand what his friends are saying to Rehoboam. They're saying, tell them, Rehoboam, your little finger... The idea, Rehoboam, where you are weakest, tell them your weakest point and compare that to your father Solomon, his waist, his strongest point. Tell them that your, your weakness is greater than your father's strength. So wherever your father was the strongest, your weakness is greater than that. Do you see what they're doing? They're playing to his ego. Right? They're just building him up. Rehoboam, you are great. Your father was great, but you are even greater. And then the next two, we understand them, right? You think your load's heavy? Just wait till you see how heavy I make it. We scourged you with whips. Now I'm going to put little barbs in the whips and scourge you with those. That's the advice he gets. Now, again, fascinating here, right? Again, a couple little asides. Rehoboam mistakenly assumes, and he gets some help with it, that he's smarter than his father. And again, a little thread we see through all of this, through this whole story, which is good to just note right here. This is a son rejecting the advice and the counsel of his father. And it's just interesting that sometimes, sometimes our worst decisions, our bad decisions can actually come in this category. Children may be rejecting the advice or the wisdom of their parents. Not every time, but certainly that's a thread here, and it's certainly worth mentioning. So that's the advice he gets from his friends. Now, three days later, he stands in front of the crowd. Verse 13, here's his response. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. And you just look at this and you think, Oh my goodness, what are you thinking? Right? If he had a said, if he had a said to the crowd, hey guys, give me three days, let me go away and come back with the worst possible answer I can think of for you, this is about it. It couldn't really get any worse than this. There is no wisdom in this. If you're sitting in the audience, and some of you know these moments, you're sitting in an audience and someone gets up to speak and you just put your head down because you're embarrassed for them. Right, that is what is happening here. There is absolutely no wisdom. He's got this tough confrontational style. And what does he really look like? He looks weak. He looks unloving and unfollowable. Right? It's really inexcusable. It's reprehensible. However you want to describe it. All he needed, all he needed was just a little humility. Just a little humility. Admit some of maybe his weakness. You know, admit that he wasn't as great as his father and he needed to earn the respect of the kingdom before he just stepped in to lead them. That's all he needed. But yet he totally misses it. Totally misses it. And you think, how did he miss this? How did he miss this? It's so obvious for us to see. We just cringe as we see it. How did he miss it? He misses it because of his pride. He's blind to his own weakness. 
He's blind to his flaws. You know, he's got too high of opinion of himself, his own dignity, his own importance, his own superiority. And he just looks out on the crowd and he says this speech that just makes us wince. It's just so embarrassing for him, but he doesn't see it. Verse 16, now he gets the response and here comes the split in the kingdom. When all Israel saw the king refuse to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home that day. And you see in their words there the strength of it and the offense that has been called there. He has hopelessly mishandled this. And the kingdom slips from his grasp. And now he's the king of two tribes. And the ten go on to go there own way. You can read the rest of the story, how almost it breaks out in civil war, and God has to intervene to stop a civil war. But we'll pause there and go back to our question as we see this tremendously bad decision, historically bad decision, and we'll say, how do we then, what can we learn? What's a principle here that we can learn to avoid making a bad decision Ourselves, And what I've got is just one principle, one big idea, and I think we should underline it, we should highlight it, we should memorize it. It will help us from making a bad decision. But, but here's what we learn. Here's what we learn. Oftentimes, we're called on to make decisions that are way over our head, right, that, that are just above our pay grade. In many ways, Rehoboam may have been better to make this decision after he'd served for 20 years, but this is day one. He's in over his head. Here's the other thing we can note from Rehoboam. At times, we're asked to make decisions where it's hard for us to be objective, where we just don't see things the way they are. Our emotion has a tendency to cloud our ability to reason well. And Rehoboam showing up on his day to be inaugurated, he's emotional, he's lost objectivity. And it's oftentimes in those environments where we're over our head, our objectivity, our emotions are down, where we make bad decisions, and then, here's what we talked about earlier at the beginning, we come along and leverage God. We leverage God to get him on our side. And here's what we just were reminded of today in this story. Sometimes God reveals his will in just very practical means in just a really simple way. And here's what we're reminded of. One of the primary ways God uses to point us in the right direction is just the wisdom and the counsel of others. Sometimes that's what, just what God uses. Yes, he uses spiritual means, and if you go and listen to the six ways, those are in there, but also times just to save us from ourselves and our own emotion and our own lack of objectivity, God just uses the wise advice and counsel of other people to point us in the right direction. So here's the principle. We should memorize it. We should write it down. It's actually written by Solomon, Rehoboam's father. You'll see it on the screens. It's Proverbs 12:15. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. You want to know how, you know, here, here's how you can identify a fool. You want to identify a fool? A fool is someone who always thinks their way is the right way. That's what Solomon is saying here, right? They're always confident, my plan, my way is the right way. And how do you identify someone that is wise? Simply someone who is wise by, in this verse, is just listening to the advice of others. 
Fools always think that their way is right. But wisdom says, let me receive counsel from others. Let me let them speak into my life. Now, you've got the principle. What I want to do is just apply it out in two different ways. One is I want to make a gospel connection to it, connect this principle to the gospel, and then secondly, I want to make some practical application. So there's the big idea today. The wise listen to advice, gospel connection, practical application. First, the gospel connection. Again, if you're new to church, you may say this. You may say, oh, it's, you know, this is great. I understand what you do in church now, right? We come to church, we hear a story, and then we learn a moral from the story, and then we go and live out the moral of the story. So you're, you're like, okay, I get this, I get this. But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. If, if Rehoboam was attending today, he would hear the story and he'd hear the moral. He would have heard this from his father. He knew this well. He would have still gone out and made the same mistake, right? And we know that ourselves. We know we know the story. We know the moral. We just always don't live it out. And this is where we need the gospel. Because what's the problem? Why does Rehoboam miss it? Because he's not open. He's not teachable. He, he's not willing to face his flaws. He's not willing to realize he's not a great as king on day one as he thinks he is. And why do we oftentimes fail to take advice? Why do we not open ourselves up? Because we're afraid to admit our need. We're too embarrassed to ask. I just don't want anyone to know that, that I don't know. Right? Sometimes we're just stubborn. Why do we make bad decisions? We're just stubborn. I just want to do my own thing. Why do we make bad decisions? We're just not humble. We just don't want to hear it. And again, as you would think back on your tremendously bad decisions or bad decisions, it often comes right from there, just like Rehoboam. We're not teachable. We're not open. We're too embarrassed as we don't want to admit a need. We're proud. And so then how do we deal with that? And that's the gospel connection. It doesn't sound like good news at first, but here's the gospel connection. First, we have to admit that we are flawed, that we are weak, that we don't know everything. And in fact, it's actually worse than that. Not just that we're flawed, but that's when we compare ourselves to other people. But when we compare ourselves to God, we realize we have fallen way short of that standard. And the Bible says we're sinners, that we've fallen way short of the standard of God. And so we come to God first humbly, broken, weak, flawed as sinners. And then in that moment of humility, we receive from God through Jesus Christ his love, his forgiveness, his unconditional love towards us. It's when we come flawed and broken as sinners, we see how good the cross is. And we are assured of God's unconditional love for us. And so once we have experienced that from God, once we have admitted our flaws humbly before him and received his love, his forgiveness, and the ongoing assurance of that, when we can rest in that relationship, it makes us possible, it makes it possible for then us to face our flaws. It makes it possible to realize that we do need help, that we do need advice, and not deny it. And so the gospel 
opens us up first to receive from God and then in that position to receive from other people. The gospel makes us humble. The gospel makes us teachable. The gospel gives us our spirits and openness to hear and receive first from God and then from others. And so if you're here today, here's the very best decision you can ever make is to humble yourself before God. Admit your own sin. Admit that you've fallen short of His standard and receive His offer of unconditional love and forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the very best decision you could ever make. And then as you would make that decision, even now in the quietness of your heart, you just stay there and rest in that and experience the freedom of that. And then that opens you up then to live out the rest of these principles, to receive from others and respond to him. So that's the gospel connection. We need the gospel to be able to be people that receive advice. Now, here then is the practical application. Let me just give it in some different ways. But again, sometimes, and, and I generally like this. You're gonna, uh, you, I generally like this statement, but I, I think it could be better. And sometimes when we apply this uh, practically, it comes out in the church like this, or someone may say it to someone else, will you disciple me? Or sometimes it comes out negatively, right? Well, the church should be doing a better job of discipling people. Now, let me say this. I'm generally for that. It's our mission statement on the wall, to walk with people from disenchantment to discipleship. I'm for making disciples. But here's sometimes my tension with that question is that it's too general, It's too general of a statement that we need to be more specific with that. I think it comes from a good heart. But here is, as I've thought about what we learned from Rehoboam today, I broke life into five categories. You'll see them come up on the screen. Spiritual life, relationships, finances, family, work. You know, there's five different areas, and each one of those has all sorts of caveats. As you're thinking about family, it could be parenting, you know, it could be marriage, it could be emptiness. There's so many different things, even in the family caveat there. And so what what I'm proposing today is we think to apply this practically, as, as you would look at that chart, who are your advisors in each of those categories? The idea of going to one person and saying, will you disciple me, is just a little too broad and a little too general. I think we need to be thinking of who then are the people in my life in these areas where they are part of my team of advisors, my team of counselors. And so as you would look at each area on the chart, here's the first application. This doesn't need to be a formal process. Some of you know this right now. Some of you have on your phone right now in one of those areas, you could text someone right now. You'd ask them a question about something in one of those areas. They'd give you a great answer. You'd be like, yes, that's good. I'm going with that, right? That's exactly what we're talking about. It's not formal, but you just know you have those sorts of relationships. And so as we start and think about the principle First today, that the wise listen to advice, we're simply saying, who are the people in your world that you're listening to in each of these five areas? And this morning, if you're thinking this, or you're online thinking right now, well, that one area, I don't need any advice. I've got it all figured out. My way's always right. Okay, we just go back to the verse, right? We've learned what it says about that. So, right? Fools seem to think their way is always right. So we always need advice. If Solomon needed a team of counselors, we all do. So that's the first area. 
Second area of application is maybe right now you're in the midst of making a very big decision. And really, God has got you here this morning or listening online because you are making a big decision. And we do learn some things from Rehoboam. Take some time. Take process it. Get your advisors together. Take time and ask them and listen to what they say. And listen to what they say. And maybe for some of you this morning, this is just what you needed to hear as you're coming up on a big decision. Just slow down. Look to the people that have nothing to lose by giving you truthful advice. Don't shop around advice, but just pause and listen to them. And then a third point of application as you see that list on the side screens or you think of your own life, what one area do you need to grow in? Where might you need to be discipled? Where might you need more advisors to come alongside? And maybe for some of you, you would say this, I'm going to go to someone and I'm going to say, would you disciple me in this area of my life? Would you disciple me in this? I need some help. I need some input. I need to grow. I need to learn. And I don't want to be like Rehoboam. I don't want to miss something that's so clear to everyone else. And here's the great thing as we close. The great thing about being part of the community of God, and Victoria appreciates so much her testimony today and the way she shared about how the community of God speaks into her life and has ministered to her. And that's the great advantage we have. There are so many wise counselors. And some of you here today, you might say, you know, if someone asked me about this area, I could really give good advice. If they asked me about another area, maybe not so much. And someone else would say the exact opposite. That's what's so good about being a part of a community that's humble before God, that's seeking to serve and love one another. We have lots of opportunity to share and seek advice from one another. And so my encouragement would be, let me end with the verse. The way of fools seems right, but the wise listen to advice. Let that be our testimony, Harbor. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you plant us in community. God, you don't plant us alone in our spiritual journey, but that you give people around us. And God, thank you, Lord, just for this practical way, God, that you help us, Lord, to make good decisions, to follow the course that you have laid out for us. And so, God, as we come to you, God, may we be humble, God, to receive from you, but then to receive others. And God, for the person today, Lord, who's making an enormously big decision, Oh, God, may you even just speak to their hearts today, Lord. Speak to their hearts, uh, God, and send wise counselors their way, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we enjoyed 24 hours in the harvest this week. Here's what we learned. There's lots of opportunity for spiritual need. Lots of people looking for advice. Lots of people looking to hear from God. And so, Harbor, as you go today, uh, remember this. Harbor, we are sent.